Language and words are such an interesting thing because they can carry the ability to paint a picture through a well-told story, or they can help us gain a deeper understanding about a specific area of interest. I mean, carefully selected vocabulary, it has the power to bring something that's bland or boring to life within our imaginations and our minds. But words, they can also lose their meaning when they're overused or we allow their meaning or the original meaning to be diminished. I mean, let's think about some of the words culturally that we've had this happen to. First, like the word love. Love's a word that originally, and in certain cases, still means a deep feeling of affection that's usually directed toward a relationship of some kind. But how we use the word love has shifted, and now we use it to even talk about our enjoyment of donuts. We say things like, I love donuts. Or what about the words incredible, amazing, unreal, unique, or unbelievable? These are words that originally were dedicated to things rarely seen or experienced. Now, these words get used in everyday conversation, which ultimately diminishes its definition. We say things like, it's unbelievable when we get cut off in traffic, when by now we should know that it's a normal occurrence in Calgary. It really is quite believable. I mean, we can say that our golf game was unreal, but we all know it was quite real with several mishits and bogeys, even if it was a good game for us personally. You see, we don't have to look far to see how language can be distorted from its original definition. And it's with this understanding that it's easy for us to happen, or for, to let it happen as we read some of the Psalms. Because we've done this within our own faith conversation. There are certain words that once carried a different uh, understanding or weight than they may carry now. Now, there's a couple words uh, that I want us to unpack together that we'll see come out of a psalm that are easy for us to miss if we let the words be misused and misunderstood. You see, the psalms, as we've been talking about, are packed with incredible language that speak to the deepest human emotions. But at times, we can miss their significance because we've let words lose their meaning. One of those words is image bearer. Now, if you've grown up in faith or in the church or you've been following Jesus for any period of time, the phrase, you bear the image of God, is one we probably all have heard. And if you've never heard that phrase, don't worry, we'll take time to unpack that together. There's also other phrases like heaven and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and they're words that at moments they've been misunderstood and they've had their definition changed and our view on what they mean changed. Now, I know I'm poking at some sensitive words for people, and so I'm asking that you stick with me as we unpack this together. And so I want us to start our time by looking into the Scripture as we continue to work through the Psalms to guide our conversations. And, and so with our time today, we're going to look at Psalm 8, and we'll read the whole chapter together. And it says this, it says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You've taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Now, if you were listening to the phrases and the words I just said, you would notice that they weren't ex explicitly in that text. But as we unpack this together, they will come forward because David, who wrote this psalm, understands the creation narrative and he has it in his mind as he crafted this psalm. 
And so he's talking about this incredible splendor of God's workmanship in the world and, and identifying and seeing the role of humans within it. I mean, David is in awe about the moon and the stars and that the creator of the world who put all of those things in place would even consider humans to be God's representatives in the earth. Now, we know there's a brokenness aspect to humanity, and we'll get there, but it doesn't take away from David as he reflects on the significant role that God gave to humans in creation. Now, if we just stop and look at how David is thinking about this in this moment, it's very different thinking than that of our culture. I mean, culturally, it seems to be that there's a, a larger and larger narrative and thought process around a creation without any purpose, that people are simply, uh, they're just accidents. They're suspended in time until death, and they have no real sense of any significance. But this psalm is reminding us and pointing us to discover the significance of creation and to understand the goodness of God that ultimately leads us to worship. In verse 4 in that psalm we just read of Psalm 8, it says that humans were made only a little lower than God and that they were crowned with glory and honor and that humans were given charge over everything God made. It was all put under their authority. Now, this is the direct connection to the creation story, which was the original orientation of the world, which is found in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, which I will just read briefly for us. And it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You see, it's this narrative in Genesis that David is questioning when he asks, what are mere mortals God, that you should think about them? What are human beings that you should even care for them? Now, culturally, I think we can think that there's this incredible action that's taken when, and we celebrate it when a celebrity, someone who's seen as famous, takes time for, you know, the regular folks of the world. When they stop and they acknowledge them, they say, wow, isn't that incredible that someone with that status would take time to acknowledge just a regular person? But David, in this moment, is caught in awe that God would acknowledge us humans. And he's struck by this creation narrative and what it means for humans to be image bearers of God. And, and, and that really is what God's intent was from the beginning, that it was the original orientation for things, that humans would represent him within the world. But what does this actually mean, being an image bearer? Because it's a phrase that's repeated a lot, but it's important that we actually wrestle this understanding together. You see, to be an image bearer is to understand that God made the world in such a way that it would work properly when, he, when, when it was ruled by humans who reflect God's wisdom into the world. Again, we know there's this broken piece and we'll get to it. But the idea of being an image bearer is a concept that we find throughout Scripture, but it also has its roots that extend back into Eastern thinking. You see, in the ancient world, it was believed that an image bearer carried the essence of that which it represented. It was a representative in a physical form, not in physical appearance, but in physical form. So, unfortunately, you can no longer claim that you have the body of a god. But this is where our issue comes in. It's our belief that we can be God, not just an image bearer, a physical representative, 
but we believe that we can be the real thing. You see, if we follow the story in Genesis, we see where the mess begins. Now, I want to pause here because for a long time, Eve has gotten a really bad rap for eating the fruit, if you're familiar with the story. But I want us to look closer because it shows a larger issue that's at hand. You see, the issue is also that Adam is there the whole time that Eve is having the conversation with the serpent. But he's completely invisible and he's completely passive. And it's this passivity that is the complete opposite of God's intention for his creation. Because the passivity, well, it's a, it's a mental and an emotional withdrawing from the world around us. Adam, he was physically present, but he's withdrawn from what's actually happening. He just watches it happen in front of his eyes. Now, if you know the story, you know this is what we've called within the church the fall. It's the moment the perfect orientation becomes disoriented. And I believe it's actually the sin of passivity that as image bearers, that's ultimately affected Jesus' followers well, since the beginning of time. Because if passivity is withdrawing emotionally and mentally, it's only in passivity that the potential for objectification actually arises. Because it means we're no longer engaged with the world around us, with our minds and our bodies. Rather, we're just physically present, but we're disconnected from what's actually going on. And this was never God's intention. It was never for that to happen. And in Jesus, God's desire was to redeem that. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. But it's with this understanding that David in the psalm picks up and asks the question, what are human beings? Why does God treat them in such a special way when they're so small, when they're such a mess in this moment? And, and it's a powerful statement coming from David because if we look at his life, he never really had the cleanest track, track record. And so this resonates deeply with him, especially since commentators seem to believe that Psalm 8 was written more toward the end of his life as he's reflecting back on everything that's happened and the moments of his own failure. He asked this incredibly profound question. Yet it's in this reflection that he finds himself worshiping within the disorientation, saying God's name is majestic. Now, it's easy for us to say, you know, Jesus saves the day, but David didn't have that. Yet he still is saying, Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth, even when I don't understand why you focus on us humans. But he still in this moment recognizes the intent of God's creation and that it's still, that, and it's still just that, it's God's creation. And now it's only within the understanding of creation in Genesis that we get this mysterious understanding. Humans, who are lower than the angels, are to be the world's true governors. And that this is what it means for them to be crowned with glory and honor. Uh, if you look back within Rome in the, in the first century, glorification meant to be put in charge. That's what the word really meant. And, and we will get to and unpack the New Testament, but they pick up on the language of being part of a priesthood. Uh, and it's this kingdom of God language that we begin to see. But before we get to the reorientation piece, it's important to stop and explain a very common misused word and definition that we really have to understand more if we're going to fully grasp the reorientation through Jesus. And it's the definitions of sin and heaven. Sin is a word that's used as missing the mark. Many people have probably heard that definition and agree with it. I do. But I love how Tom Wright defines it when he talks about missing the mark. He says, the human problem is not so much sin, seen as the breaking of moral codes, though that, to be sure, is part of it, but rather it's idolatry and the distortion of genuine humanness that it produces. 
You see, the original sin, as Tom sees it, is one of idolatry, that humans wanted to be God and wanted to serve and worship power. And anything that takes the creator God out of his rightful spot and replaces it with something else is, well, it's idolatry, which is exactly what we see in the story of Adam and Eve. Tom goes on to argue that in order for God's creation and humans to be restored for God's work, it's that idols actually need to be broken. And he goes on to say that since sin, the consequence of idolatry is what keeps humans in thrall to the non-gods of the world, dealing with sin has a more profound effect than simply releasing humans to go to heaven. It releases humans from the grips of idols so they can worship the living God and be renewed according to his image. And so sin, ultimately, is a failure to be human the way we were intended. Sin, it's an abuse of calling, it's an abuse of privilege and possibilities. You see, our thoughts and our words and our actions, they all have consequences and they were meant to. That's what the original intent of being an image bearer was all about. But what sin does is it replaces good consequences with damaging ones. Now, this leads us to another interesting understanding that has been formed within the Western world. And it's this idea of escaping this world that we find ourselves in to go to this place where God dwells called heaven. But we have to stop for a moment to see if this is really what God had in mind as we look back at the creation narrative and, and we discover in Psalm 8 that, we, that we'll get picked up again in Hebrews saying, what does it mean to be human as they're giving glory and honor? I mean, based on an honest reading of scripture and looking at Revelation where we see another garden and language of new heavens and new earth, I would like to suggest that the goal of the Christian faith is not heaven in the traditional sense. But the goal is that as Jesus followers, that we have a renewed human vocation, job within God's renewed creation that ultimately begins to be ushered in with Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, this comes back to the original intent of being image bearers. Humans, we were made to reflect the praises of creation back to the creator and reflect the creator's wise and loving stewardship into the world. Why? So that ultimately that heaven and earth will be one in fullness when Jesus returns again. Now, in, in fairness, this is what we see every book of Scripture from Genesis pointing us towards. This could lead us into a, a much larger conversation, and, and we'll save that for another space and time. But what we have to understand is that humans, as seen in the creation narrative that David's wrestling with, are not just called to just keep a certain moral standard, although that is a part of it. But rather, humans were called to be worshiping stewards, bringing justice and God's wisdom within God's heaven and earth reality, which we see Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer when he says, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, which leads us ultimately to Jesus who reorients the disoriented world. See, the book of Hebrews picks up on this, uh, on Psalm 8, and expands it in light of the work of Jesus. And it's starting in verses 5 uh, of Hebrews 2. It says this, it says, and furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out, but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. 
what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. You see, we see in Hebrews that David's question from Psalm 8 gets answered in the person of Jesus. The author of Hebrews is, is, is talking and taking that psalm and suggesting that we can all see that there's an issue with people. It's not being ruled the way that it was intended to be ruled. People aren't bringing this order and justice, and it feels like chaos still. So how do we actually take Psalm 8 seriously? And it's in the next sentence within Hebrews where it says, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And then it goes on further in that chapter to discuss the suffering Jesus and his full humanity and what that means for us. You see, the answer is that all of it has happened in the case of Jesus. He's the representative of humans. He's exalted as Lord after his earthly ministry that comes to a climax in his suffering and death and then his resurrection, and through that he condemns evil and he launches the new creation here and now that ultimately will come in fullness one day. Jesus is the fullness of what it means to be human. And what he does is he redeems the vocation of humanity, and he allows us all to connect back to our own humanness. And he does it through the cross, and that's where he ushers in the kingdom of God on earth. Which brings us to defining the kingdom of God, which was not in David's psalm language necessarily, but is a part of the larger conversation of what are humans in God's larger creation. You see, the kingdom of God ultimately is here and now, as we just discussed, that Jesus brought in and ushered in, but not yet, which is to borrow some language again from Tom Wright. The kingdom of God is what Jesus ushered in when he lived, died, and rose again to new life. What it ultimately means is it means that it can be experienced here and now on earth, and Jesus desires for it to be experienced. But again, it won't be fully realized until the end of the age, as Scripture explains it. But the question we must ask then is, how can something that happened to Jesus by himself be relevant for us? And this is the reorientation piece that, that should ultimately lead us to worship as it did in David's life. Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, invites us to be what the New Testament calls a royal priesthood, participating in God's redemptive work in the world. In the New Testament, the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians build their case upon the resurrection being a launching pad for God's work through humans. I mean, if we jump to the book of Revelation, Revelation 1 says to him, being Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. If we were to look into 1 Peter, it echoes this call about a priesthood as well. But we also read in scripture about the time in between. The kingdom that has been established and its effects here and now, but the world not fully realized until Jesus returns. We're, we're finding ourselves in this space. And this is where the church and Jesus' followers are to step back into the vocation that Jesus redeemed. We're to step up and to show and be God's mission of reconciliation, proclaiming the forgiveness of Christ as we follow the example of Jesus. It means practically when we see Jesus fighting for justice in Scripture, it's justice that we're also to embody. 
It means that the marginalized are being cared for, that the needs of others are being put before our own, even if it means wearing a mask when we disagree with it. Because the reality is, is it's not about us, but we make sacrifices for the sake of others because we follow Jesus' example of suffering and serving. And it's not passive, but rather it's fully engaged here and now. It's not waiting for something eternal at the end of our lives, but it's being a part of healing and redemption in the world now, knowing that it has significance because we're not escaping this earth, but God is redeeming it through us and will bring it to completion with Jesus. You see, God wants to put the world right, not just for individuals, but for all of creation. And he desires to do it through redeemed humans here and now. How we love people matters because we're image bearers. How we treat the world we live in matters because we're image bearers. Fighting for justice matters. Unity matters. Forgiveness matters. Healing matters. Every aspect of your life matters because every aspect of your life, Jesus wants to use to continue to bring about redemption in his creation. He desires for more of us to reorient our lives around a deeper understanding that life is not meant to be lived waiting to escape, but rather that life is meant to be lived scrapping and pushing back against the brokenness of the world because Jesus' resurrection says, it doesn't have to be this way. It says there's another way of life and it's available now and it will be fully realized eventually. You see, Jesus did not redeem us to be set free from the world, but he redeemed us for the world. And so God, through Jesus, puts people right so that through us, he can put the world right. And Jesus tells us when we read in scripture that the world gets put right through people who are meek, through those who are pure in heart, through the mourners. It's done through those who are hungry for justice. They transform a world. God's doing new things and is summoning surprised men and women to come and be a part of it, to find their lives rescued and renewed and redeemed and ultimately reoriented. And so to come back to David's worship and praise question about humans, what are humans that God would think of them? They're the living words through which the world will see who the true God really is. They're the ones called to be a sign that everyone can read, pointing toward a new reality here and now that's not trying to escape, but is ushering in God's desires for creation. They're the ones that God has set to show the world that he is not far from anyone, but rather that it's in him that we live and move and have our being. The death and resurrection of Jesus has set us free to take up our true place as people who are a part of the ongoing redemption of creation. Our role is to not sit back and wait for this eternal blessing, but to usher in the kingdom of God now through sacrifice and suffering. And it's with that understanding that we repeat the words of David, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.